0: Sam Prendergast. He's Mr. Composure for the end of the game to bring a team from behind to win. You can't win anything with kids. You know, it was. I actually thought it was fantastic, and I, I don't know if you can hold back the hype. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. Now you're very welcome along. So happy to say we are bringing you the Sunday Papers live this afternoon. Connor McCone of The Independent, Gavin Cooney of The 42 here in studio. You're both very welcome. How are you, Joe? Thanks, so Great. Up. So uh, front page of The Sunday Times. We have a picture of Big Sam. At least he stopped Haaland is the headline. So Man City ace uh, fails to score against Leeds, but Allardyce Reign uh, starts with defeat. Uh, alongside that on the front page of the Sunday Times story about Messi. PSG. Well, the words seem to be the PSG were pretty happy to let Messi go, but now PSG are very much leaving the door open for Messi to stay put, says Duncan Castles. He's... Uh, undergoing a two-week internal suspension after breaking strict club rules. He missed Monday's uh, scheduled training session to fly to Saudi Arabia for a lucrative commercial engagement. But on Friday afternoon, he uh, surprised senior PSG officials by making a public apology on social media. So it seems they would like him to stay. He is, of course, free agent this summer. Barcelona lurking, although the piece says they'll have to cut their budget by 200 million euro to re-register Messi, which is, you know... Not nothing. And then Saudi Arabia's Pro League, you won't be surprised to hear, is very much uh, lurking, as is the MLS. Although the piece does say that even though Ronaldo is getting €400 million euro net, net over two years, Messi has observed his difficulties in adjusting to life at Al Nasir. So that's uh, Messi's situation. We all have problems. I guess his are <laughs> a slightly higher class. And then Anfield uh, crowd drown out national anthem on front page of the Sunday Times
1: See, that, well. that is exquisite understatement there by Messi or, or sorry a source close to Messi Ronaldo's difficulty in adapting I think read between the lines the league is crap yes what they're saying.
0: Ronaldo in a type of purgatory hell situation I suppose is the uh, context there mail on Sunday a picture from Scottsdale last night Glasgow 5 Munster 14 this is the first defeat for Glasgow at home in 17 months Munster have turned their season around in a big way Uh, Winners against Glasgow, they'll face Leinster in a URC semi-final now in a week's time, although quite a few injuries sustained just last night. Peter O'Mahony, Orgy Snyman, Conor Murray, Dermot Barron all uh, injured. Leinster, meanwhile, cruised past the Sharks, 35 points to five, as they do. We have the Sunday Mirror then and a picture of Ten Hag. The headline is Tense Hag, so Ten Hag is very keen for the takeover situation to be sorted out ASAP in time for the summer transfer window really and alongside that interestingly Spurs to land jabi so beautiful Shabby Alonso that jawline that hairline could be coming to a Spurs dugout near you he's doing great things with Bayer Leverkusen and the mirror say that he is Levy's number one choice number one choice 41 years of age to replace Antonio Conte Uh, There are different names elsewhere, as we'll come to in a moment, being suggested as Levy's number one choice. Uh, You could have blown it. That's uh, Pep's words to Erling Haaland after he gave the penalty to Gundogan yesterday against Leeds. We have um, the Sunday Independent then as well. It's a picture of Hugo Keenan last night for Leinster as they did cruise past the Sharks. Leinster march on, five-try route of Sharks, keeps Blues on course for the double. And beneath that, Spurs facing 10 million feet to Land Nagelsmann so interestingly Mirror are saying it's very much about Javi Alonso whereas Matt Law here on the front page of the Sunday Independent is saying Nagelsmann is the number one target and because Bayern Munich have him on gardening leave they will have to pay Spurs that is £10 million sterling to Bayern just to release him from gardening leave so they are your uh,
1: back pages there we go anything catching your eye in the football yesterday in particular Well, I mean, uh, it was obviously observed, um, the booing of God Save the King, as has now been rewritten, uh, at Anfield uh, before the Premier League game. uh, I did see, and I bet my life on it, that Luke Aileen was singing God Save the Queen. Oh really? Yeah. yeah,
0: I bet my life. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't blame him. You know, I mean, it's it's not been rewritten for that long. Yeah,
1: um, I, don't,
0: I don't think it was a stance. I don't think he was refusing to recognise oh, King Charles. <laughs>
1: yeah, I just think force a habit more than I uh, not. My king or not my monarch. Uh, I, I suppose he didn't bring in one of those placards for fear of the reaction uh, he might get. But I was just, you know, Martin Samuel, the, uh, the voice of football or the voice of sport, as he's now uh, um, tilted in the Sunday Times, uh, writing that the self self serving league must learn from anthem debacle. So. Maybe Making the point that there is no need for the Premier League to play, God save the King. I did. Li- I really liked how he phrased it. Uh, are we done with the Premier League trying to in- insert itself into every national event, self-servingly des- desperate to be part of occasions that have nothing, repeat nothing, to do with football? There was absolutely no reason to play, God save the King, at football matches yesterday.
0: Yes, he said it was idiotic, mm. not least when it became clear that Liverpool would be at home. On the day of the coronation, Mm. so he says that Liverpool is an anti-establishment club. Now, that defines the club, and he he hastens to add Sir Kenny Dogleash, Ian Rush, MBE, Jordan Henderson, MBE. They are not necessarily anti-establishment, but the club itself is on the back of Hillsborough in particular, and so to... Force this on the clubs, which is what the Premier League did by suggesting it might be a good idea for you to play the anthem. That really left them with no choice. And yeah. he just thinks this was
1: idiotic and created a uh, nasty enough scene, really, for no good reason. Yeah. And Like, he he raised the point, like, why did the Premier League want the anthem to be played? And I really don't understand why either, because, you know, it is, okay, it is an English competition or a British competition in one sense, mm. but it's an international league, you know, I mean, it's, uh, its relationship with the UK government doesn't go as far as, say, welcoming some kind of impending regulation of the league from the government, so... It's just this weird thing or element of the Premier League that's sprung up in the last five years. As, as it's become, you know, more ultra capitalist and more ultra international. You know, it, it wants, you know, around the poppy every year we have these kind of festivals of solemnity and observance. And this is another example of it. And I don't really know why. And I also don't know why it's being treated as something like a, this state-sponsored coronation is something unique, given we see it every year when Man City win the win the title. It's yeah. also a, a case where sort of
2: big-level sport, the highest-profile sport with the greatest number of eyeballs attached. They're great promotion vehicles for whatever brand of nationalism it is that you're trying to push. Like, you, you see that the Super Bowl, the, the ridiculously overwrought versions of the Star-Spangled Banner and the displays of American military, you know, the, 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 the jets going overhead. You know, like, people might just think that that's bells and whistles, but it's not. Like, it's, it's, it's making a point, you know, and it's like, this is the big... Sporting activity. Everybody's watching the Super Bowl, and here's a display of American nationalism. You know, true. It's and it, it's more of a military thing. But I think I would imagine that there's there's probably deeper ties between the Premier League and the sort of you know the British uh, the British hierarchy, politically speaking, than is immediately apparent to all the rest of us. Um And you know, like we play around the vein of country before every GA match. You know, that is a thing that happens, and uh, nobody bats an eyelid. But, you know, when they play God Save the King, as it is now before the, the Premier League games, um, that probably shows that it's probably less clear cut uh, mm-hmm. than, we,
0: than we feel it is over here. But good of the king to play the Chams League music for his coronation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear, that was the big surprise for a lot of people. Zadok the priest. I had only realised that when uh, the Queen Sorry, died. Sorry, did this
1: actually happen? I thought that was a gag. Oh, no. Oh, no, he did play the Champions League. But
0: sorry, Zadok the priest, when the Queen passed away Mm. and they reshowed her coronation for that week-long football festival, I suppose, in the aftermath, what struck a lot of people about the 1953 coronation was that the Champions League music was being played for the coronation. No,
1: I missed this. Oh,
0: yeah, so, like... If you go back and watch the coronation at like the moment, the yeah. crucial moment, in effect,
1: the champion. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't but <laughs> sing it. Yeah,
0: I haven't. I don't know the lyrics of Zadok the Priest, but um, yeah,
1: it's not the champion. It's, it's just the champions over and over again. And yes. do you think the Queen quietly lived
2: all of her life sitting there watching Champions League on a Tuesday and a Wednesday, thinking to herself, yeah. "Did it already last? Yeah,
0: <laughs> fifty-three, of course." <laughs> Uh, the point is made as well on, you know, no reason to play it. King Charles is uh, has no apparent interest in football, whereas his son, William, is uh, president of the FA and a uh, big Aston Villa fan. So when his time comes, it may be different. I don't know. It's uh, Martin Samuel, uh, page five of the Sunday Times. Just on the football team for a moment, as soon as we've jumped off on football. Wayne Rooney. Here's a strong opening to his column. Manchester City will not just beat Real Madrid in their Champions League semi-final... They'll blow them away. So I know most of us instinctively feel City will do that, but then very quickly we say, well, jeez, though, Real Madrid in this competition are a curious beast. But Rooney's not too worried, really. A year ago, Madrid put City out of the competition at this stage, but the dynamics are different now. City are better at the back. They're a more patient team, who in the Champions League have been playing like they've learned from the European experiences. But the biggest change is Erling Haaland, of course, he says. And he says of last year, where in the second leg at the burnabout, City conceded twice in stoppage time and then early in extra time to blow a two-goal lead. That did not tie in with the previous pattern of exits under Guardiola. There was no pattern at work. Guardiola did not overthink. At the burnabout, I thought City's performance was incredible. Pep got his tactics spot on. The team just had a mad five minutes. It does happen sometimes. And he goes on to talk about how Haaland have made City not just scary with the ball, but also super scary without the ball. They can kill you on the break. And then he's pretty effusive about the much maligned Ancelotti. And he he does this very well in his columns, actually. He brings you back into, uh, what, the guts of 15 years at Manchester United where he just has a whole array of games to... Uh, bring you experiences of so he talks about playing Milan in 07 Ronaldo was playing off the left for us and for them Cafu bombing forward from the right hand side every time Cafu went upfield Gattuso would step in from the middle of the pitch to backfield the gap where he would foul and frustrate Ronaldo until he nullified the threat and I remember thinking what a clever ploy that was so again Ancelotti is more than just a raised eyebrow and a make you feel good kind of a merchant And as a final point, I think you have to put City up there with United's 99 uh, treble winners as the best Premier League team of all time if they win the Champions League, as he expects them to do. And he says ROH United team were also a great side, but the way City dominate opponents and make it look so easy so often while constantly fighting on all fronts is way beyond what we did. So as much as it pains him, as he says in the piece, Rooney, absolutely effusive about this Manchester City yeah. team.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's goading fate there by riding off Real Madrid so resolutely before a Champions League game. I mean, we did this on a kind of a bi-weekly basis last season or last spring and uh, Madrid midfield of everyone, but it is hard, I know. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do the same thing. It is hard to see City not winning this and then going on to win the Champions League. Yeah. I mean, Rooney's point is very interesting as to how Haaland is, has changed them. So at the start of the season we are looking at Haaland and like City basically weren't passing the ball and you're wondering, well, they act- they don't know how to play with this guy. Um, and Jonathan Wilson has a good line in his observer piece that appears in the Sunday Independent that it's become a kind of creative tension. And Bernardo Silva touched on it when he was talking after the final win. It's just like, we realise that we don't always need to have the ball. Like City destroyed Bayern really but didn't have the majority of the possession for the first time in God knows how long and Silva said we, we know we don't need to have the ball anymore because they have brought in that kind of you know Liverpool like terrorising counter-attacking thrust with Haaland so now it's kind of interesting you know like I mean most managers have a sell-by date usually because they can't move on from their great ideas where Guardiola we think is this ultimate philosopher and ultimate idealist and ideologue uh, but he's kind of changed how he, how he plays as well and you know, where where City, to go back to Zadok the Priest, I assume it wasn't booed at the coronation back in the 1950s. But the Man City fans have been booing that anthem for years. And there's been this, this very strange relationship between City and the Champions League. Like, you know, Do they really love this competition and embrace it? There seems to be almost a status anxiety about them in the Champions League in the early years. But Haaland loves it. It was only a little thing, but after... After the Leipzig game or after the Bayern game in the quarterfinals, he tweeted like nothing but love for this competition. No Man City player or anyone associated with the club could say that about the Champions League. So maybe that gets them over the line. Pep,
2: um, the point as well about Pep Guardiola being you know an ideologue, but obviously a more versatile. Like in previous years. The trope has been, well, Pep is overthinking this and that's why they don't win the Champions League because they're going away from the thing that has got them that far and he's tinkering too much. When I watched them the other night against Arsenal last week and like, it, it was such a fundamental change to how they usually play. They played with two pivots with Rodri and Gundogan in a much deeper role. De Bruyne played literally off Haaland. It was almost like watching Robbie Keane playing off Niall Quinn. Um, expecting that Arsenal's midfield and two would press up. And the the amount of ball that they got in behind Arsenal was absolutely... Because they knew that Arsenal were going to try and defend on the halfway line. So there was an example of the most important Premier League game of the season, if you want to put it that way. He made a very fundamental change to the team and it paid off. So I think it's one of those things you always notice when it doesn't come off, but you have to kind of pay tribute and recognise as well when it does come off. Just on the Wayne Rooney piece as well, uh, just looking at it from a kind of boring journalism eye, Editors will always tell you to make sure you have something um, very snappy and a strong line early on in the piece. He goes all out here in the first line of the piece uh, by saying Manchester United will not just beat Real Madrid in the Champions League. They'll blow them away. And then he ruins it by saying, of course I may be wrong. Uh, <laughs> that's true.
0: That was a Freudian slip in your part. Are you a Manchester United fan? No. All oh, right, Because you said Manchester United will beat Real Madrid there. Uh, No, I'm definitely not Manchester. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) What strikes me about City, and of course you have to uh, note the 115 charges looming Mm. Mm. as the context, but in Haaland, and I think as well in Grealish, I've never enjoyed watching them more as a team. It's just a touch more alive than... They're slightly different to... Possession brilliance. They're slightly different
2: to the... The kind of preeminent teams of the various different areas, in so far as they are that bit more flexible, yeah. you know, like the, like their their two wingers aren't pacey wingers. You know what I mean? Like Grelish is obviously a very good dribbler and he's very penetrative, but he always cuts inside on his right foot. And the same with Mares on the far wing. There's no kind of real speedsters there. Um, and but and the control that they have over the ball when when Rodri in particular gets it, but even like a kanji, like I'm not sure that anybody else was interested in buying a kanji and all of a sudden he arrived into the city team and he's keeping um, he's keeping Kyle Walker out of the team. So like you'd always view these things in retrospect and say, Well obviously you're gonna win everything with all these great players but I think there's definitely a touch of that Pep Guardiola has made a lot of them great players. Yeah. I was reading that book about Barcelona recently and you know, we think of, you know, Sergio Busquets as being one of the great sort of defensive midfield pivots of all time and Pedro that was on that team as the quick winger, but they were languishing in the Barcelona reserves and the B team. They weren't gonna get anywhere until Guardiola came in and said, This is gonna be my style. This person they both have a very um they both have a skill set that can play a role in that team um, and sometimes you kind of don't forget that, that there's there's, there's more coaching and management that goes into creating
0: really good sides than mm. simply just talent accumulation yeah but I, I I did like that against Arsenal they boot the ball along to Haaland mm. it just added a certain variety to their play which wasn't there in recent years for me and it's funny I was talking to somebody who uh, knows Jack Grealish and uh, this is not speaking out a turn overly. It's not dramatic or anything, but Grealish was talking about what Pep wants from him, and the line was, "I have to stay on that left hand. He divides the pitch up into various uh, quadrants, I suppose. I have to stay on that left hand side. If I come out, if I and I, if I come out of that, he'll take me off. Yeah, just take me off. But once I get the ball, I can do whatever I want.
1: That's, That's interesting. interesting. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, you'd imagine." You know, you'd imagine that uh, you know, the, the manager that encourages free expression and allows attack and Blair Street to the potential will be like you know, you're smarter than me, you go you do you yeah. Jack, you know you like Smell you, it, Jack, you yeah. do what you got. To do. No, no. <laughs> Whereas no, you have to follow exactly my exactly what I tell you. It's it's a very it's kind of an almost counterintuitive way of thinking about creativity. But look, Grealish, I didn't really think he was going to reach these levels. Mm. I didn't think he was as... I, I was surprised that he joined City in the first place. I thought he was more of a Man United player than a Man City player, to be honest. Um, and he did kind of struggle last season, but he's been... You know and if you're picking a team of the year it's hard not to put Rashford oh, to yeah. the left of that front three but Pep Grealish in the last few months Pep I think he's done one of the best I looked at Bread and
0: said I'll break him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it might take me a year but I'll break him. It was
2: uh, I, I watched the Man City all or nothing before and I, and I was struck by um, Mikel Arteta when he was doing a bit with the with the wingers and he said that he hated the ball from the full back up the line to the winger because mm-hmm. the winger has nowhere to go and he said that the, the defender is then on the on the bum, as he said of the winger. And ever since watching that, any time I watch Arsenal, if you look at when the ball is played to Bukayo Saka, he's always coming off the sideline. Well, the best example and being some, at Anfield. Yeah, and it's impossible not to see it now because it's in yeah. your head. But, yeah. but and, like, you, and you can wow the people whose company you're
0: in with your football wait, knowledge saying by that, saying, wait but, you see him coming off. The. If you think that goal where he comes off the wing and Robertson slips, yeah. that's how that goal happens. And I would say a defining aspect of Republic of Ireland wing play over the last 20 years has been for fullback to pass it straight up the line <laughs> to winger with defender up his backside yeah, and yeah.
1: we're going nowhere. Yeah. Um, but like how blessed we are because this is like, that's a few minutes there on what a genius Guardiola is. But we're also watching the league next door to us on our televisions that has Sam Allardyce an even greater mind. I know, you know. Well, time. indeed. Uh, just to
0: mention, by the way, uh, page two of the Sunday Times to finish off in that Man City game yesterday in Man City at large. Uh, Keane's lead stint offers him chance at a reboot, says Paul Rowan. So it's it's there's nothing. Uh, Revelatory as such in the piece, it, it touches on Keane and the quarter of million a year from the FAI and and a sense of the limbo that he was in, perhaps from a managerial point of view. The lead stint is a much needed reboot, and the door to him being Ireland manager at some point is not closed. But the man who blazed a trail now has some catching up to do. Is the closing line of the piece, and uh, he got the call on Wednesday, courtesy of Sammy Lee's jury duty. I mean, it's just like. <laughs> She's like, this is all so weird. The, but, uh, you, you Coronation just, Street stuff. Like <laughs> I just So, Sammy Lee can't be alongside Big Sam because uh, the judge is screwing him, frankly. <laughs> and So, Keane got the call. He was on the flight as soon as he got the call Wednesday morning and arrived over. And so, uh, you know, it's a bit of a chance for him. Boy, was he excited to be on the same dugout as Pep.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone could have watched that game on television for more than five minutes and not realised that Robbie Keane was part of the Leeds coaching staff. He was you know, he was obviously to the forefront of the entire drama by the touchline. It's a good opportunity for Keane. He really wants to be a manager and I'm very excited and very interested to see how it goes. The FAI thing for Keane was a bit of a mess for all parties. I don't think Keane did anything wrong in that scenario, but it was a bit of a mess. But he uh, he wants to be a manager. Uh, he said probably his own reasons for not going and um, taking the plunge in the last six months or so. Uh, but I'm really interested to see how it goes because the journalist in me admires Robbie Keane's contacts book. It is unrivaled. You know, he's uh, he's got access to like all of the great coaching minds in Europe. Really, like he spent time at Real Madrid with Ancelotti. He obviously knows Modric from his time at Spurs, and now he's on this UEFA committee of. You know, football geniuses basically. This board of football heads, like Mourinho is on it, uh, Vieira is on it, Benitez is on it. All these guys are Maldini's on it, I think as well. All these guys who are, um, you know, who are basically the UEFA brains trust. and going to feed into UEFA what they should, how they should change the game, etc. So uh, Keane is keeping rarefied company on that. So he's got a hell of a lot of ideas to, to tap into when he does take the plunge into management. And I, I really, I'm really looking forward to seeing when he does it.
0: It will be interesting to see if Leeds manage to stay up. They've Newcastle next, then they've West Ham and they have Spurs at Allen Road. Four points might be enough. It's certainly doable. Will Leeds look at Big Sam and Robbie and say, three-year deal? Or what happens to Sammy Lee? Surely... The case can't go on forever. It might.
1: (laughs) It can't be on jury (laughs) duty. It could be an OJ job. (laughs) (laughs) Just some Kafkaesque disaster that (laughs) keeps Sammy Lee out of front line football. You just have to say, though,
2: to go from Marco Bielsa to Sam Allardyce is a wild, wild jump.
1: It's the most bizarre industry. But this season in particular has been particularly Mm. dumb. It's it's not just Leeds. Most of the clubs in the league have completely lost around themselves this year. You know money pe- money makes people desperate and i remember there's an old set bladder line that football makes people mad it's a pretty heady mix i think would, and mo- many premier league it would be a decent
2: fun. level shortlist for the biggest shambles in the premier league this year like between chelsea and ah, spurs Chelsea are runaway leaders yeah well spurs managed to do a good harakiri there towards the end of the
1: season as well <laughs> uh, and uh, the mo- but i think the moment when frank lampard sat in the bernabéu and couldn't explicitly or categorically deny that he was given the job on the word of James Corden. <laughs> yeah, just deny that. I feel, <laughs> I feel that was the moment when... Todd Bowley, the great disruptor, I think you've disrupted the wrong thing, pal. <laughs> did you watch the James
0: Corden finale to his eight years that the, show? they smashed up his stage? Or yeah, what did, did you watch the... I saw I mean, I I watched it all, uh, you know, intending just to think it was terrible. Yeah. God, it was bloody good.
1: Was it, Jim? Oh my goodness! My
0: sister is just back from New York with her boyfriend,
2: and they said they went straight to the restaurant where uh, the guy—I can't remember the manifest—is yeah. called Manifest or something like that. And they went straight to that restaurant because uh, they said fair play to your man for calling it out. And
0: started the ball rolling. Eventually, got James Corden kicked out of. It seems like. Balthazar? Balthazar. Yes. That's exactly it. Yes. Yeah. Listen, I, hope, I hope she was well behaved, you know, social media <laughs> these days. Uh, it was so good. There was a 15 minute skit with Tom Cruise. Again, you would think. Yeah. This won't be good. There's just not enough likability here in this uh, duo. It was very funny. They, um, they started in The Lion King for a night. Surprised the audience. They rehearsed. And oh, who played who? You don't know. Uh, they did. Um, Tom Cruise was the Warthog. Oh, uh, Timon and Pumba. Yes. And Corden was Timon. Oh, right. They sang Kuna Matata. Okay. And then took you know, revealed and the audience lost their minds.
1: Amazing. It was really good. Yeah, in fairness to Corden, I'm not as not as big as a fan. Uh, but the Carpool Karaoke with Paul right. McCartney. Now, you might argue that anyone could have made that good TV. I thought um, he was very good in Gavin and Stacey. Very good. Yeah. But after that, I think he lost one him of himself. Well, the Carpool Karaoke
0: is with Adele. And again, it's Top Top. Ah, oh, I haven't seen that. It's really good. She reveals she wrote a song for him because in 2020 he had hit rock bottom. He started crying in Carpool Karaoke. Oh. He was down with the show and down with the uh, internet, as he put it. The snipers, like Conor McKeown online, writing mean things and... He got very emotional. Yeah. Kind of, we, we, you know, he won me back over.
1: Just and a all bit. the while Death freelancing
0: as Chelsea's sporting director. Well, indeed. I was, I was like, how
1: did we get onto that? Okay. What a character arc. <laughs>
0: yeah. Just, um, so we'll finish off the football scene as we started with it. There's a really good piece. Gav, you picked it out on uh, the Milan Derby, which oh, is yeah, going to yeah, be the other semi-final. Uh, fear of losing Stoke's a City and its two fallen giants. Jonathan Lou here. It seems like he's gone over to Milan and spoken to various people. Interestingly... There's just a concrete sense that Inter will absolutely win. So there's a club employee who wants to remain nameless for obvious reasons because he works for Milan, and he says, The final will be Manchester City against Inter, he declares glumly. In this moment, Inter are stronger. Only Pep Guardiola can help us, is the AC Milan verdict. I think Real Madrid are saying the same thing, by the way. Okay. And so Jonathan writes, I don't, in, in a weird way, I never delved too much into the Milan-Inter rivalry, so this was a really interesting piece. The Milan-Inter rivalry is a strange one. There is no real ideological, sociological or geographical divide between them. They even share a stadium. Their fans are pretty evenly spread across the city. Neighbourhoods and workplaces and schools and often families are divided along tribal lines. For all the fire and fervour of the two clubs' ultra groups, derbies generally pass off with very little incident. There is no hate in the Milan derby, Andrei Shevchenko once said. And uh, he charts their uh, recent fall. So, Champions League for Milan 07, the treble under Jose for Inter in 2010. Uh, But the seeds of the decline were already been sown. Berlusconi, Moratti, Dynasties, who owned the two clubs, were beginning to scale down their ambitions, just as everybody else was scaling up. In 1516, for the first time in 60 years, uh, which is quite something neither side represented in Europe, a revolving door of owners put Milan on the brink of bankruptcy, and Inter struggled and stagnated under the new ownership of the Sunning Group. Managers, mediocre players came and went. Inter went six years without Champions League football, Milan seven. And uh, last few years, a bit of a revival. Inter won the league under Conte in 21, Milan won in 22. And there are signs that both are starting to come out of the financial wilderness. Inter, possible sale in the summer. Milan have an American private equity group, uh, Redbird, capital and uh, there's a sense that neither club is going to take over the world anytime soon but things are getting better it was just a really good piece in was great. it
1: sets up the semi-final very nicely perfectly yeah the writing is class I've always wondered about that rivalry between Milan and Inter because just so many players seem to go from between both clubs you never really see, maybe that happens a lot more in Italy but you never really see that um, you know like think of pig's heads being thrown at Luis Figo etc uh, so that no, it was really good um, it, I, I, it taps into that you know that horror of facing your biggest rivals in a massive game because you might lose to them that's the worst where mutually assured destruction looks like maybe the best possible outcome here uh, but it is sadly setting up a kind of a dog of a game <laughs> next <laughs> Wednesday um, small wonder Alessandro Nesta a veteran of the classic 3 semi-final that Milan one and away goals is predicting an ugly conservative game the two teams fear each other he said, "But no, it's a great piece." There's something about AC Milan, though. Maybe it's my vintage uh,
2: because of Gazetta Football Italia and how prominent they are in the kind of you know nostalgia and football psyche. That the, the world seems like a better place when AC Milan are in the Champions League semi-final for some reason. It seems like all is right with the world. Going back even to the team, the Marco van Basten, Ruud Hullert, um Marcel Desai team. Mm. That in, in for people of my age. I think that's nearly the quintessential big European team the great was it 4-0 they beat Barcelona Was the 94th Champions League final Uh, and it always felt like a matter of when rather than if they would kind of come back to this stage Mm. Um, but they are slightly miffed that it's a private American equity firm that has helped get them here like the you know your faith in kind of this whole you know the romantic part of you that that thinks that Milan will come back of, of the power of their own you know grandness uh, it, it gets punctured a little bit when you find out that it's 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 the same
0: motivating forces as everywhere else. I read out the name a moment ago. Can either of you remember the name of the American private equity group? They always have very forgettable names. Mm. Red Redbird. Red Sorry, oh,
1: you, you, both, you both did remember. <laughs> okay, I take it back. I take it back.
0: Redbird Capital is. I
1: think is LeBron James yeah. involved in them? Ah, okay, uh, that's why. You okay. Know, that's, uh, the Redbird uh, Redbirds PR has worked on us too, like. The only city to boast two
0: European Cup winners. Very good. Until Manchester City win this league, or, or win this year,
1: I suppose. But uh, Milan, oh, yeah. previous to that, the only city top two. London only has one. That's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing, yeah. And Chelsea would have won it for the first time in 2012. That's crazy. Yeah. Madrid came close. Yeah. But Real, <laughs> Real Madrid kept being Atletico on the final.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that undercut the uh, two teams from one city. We'll take a very short break. It's half-time, by the way, in the Connacht Football Final. Galway are eight points clear, 2-7 to Sligo's five points. Sligo started very well, but uh, Galway have kicked on very much so since. And they will have a strong enough wind in the second half as well. We'll continue the Sunday Papers. Loads to get to with Conor McKeown and Gavin Cooney back in one not. Now, you're welcome Mac. If you're just tuning in, Connacht Football Final Galway leading by 8 points, 2-7 to Sligos 5 is the latest. We're in the midst of reviewing the Sunday papers. Connor McKeown and Gavin Cooney are here. So, Connor, you picked out Ireland's most underrated sports person in conversation with Paul Kimmich. Yeah, I thought that this... Uh, I went straight
2: for this this morning when I saw it um, flagged the day before because Seamus Power, like, it's very hard to compare... Athletes, obviously, in different sports. But in terms of, you know, the global nature of golf and the level at which Seamus Power is competing, he must be one of Ireland's most successful current athletes. You know, to make the PGA Tour is an exceptional, exceptional thing. Um, And to win on the PGA Tour puts you in the absolute bracket of a truly international sport. But he's kind of done it without drawing a whole pile of attention to themselves. And in Ireland, we very rarely allow an athlete to
0: ascend to that level without being intimately acquainted with them. If you walk down Grafton Street in golf attire and a golf bag that said power, <laughs> do you think Manny would clock no, it? No, absolutely not. I don't either. No,
2: no he's managed to do... And it, it might be, obviously, like Shane Lowry. Okay, He's won a major. But before that, when he was roughly at the same level as power... there was a much greater awareness of Lowry because he'd won the Irish Open as an amateur so there was a very Irish angle to the story of his
0: rise it was a hell of an arrival
2: yeah it was an amazing arrival um but it, it, it's incredible, like in Ireland, we, we we tend to take very little interest in our athletes until they do get to a certain level. Mm. And it's amazing that Power has made it to this level, which is an extraordinarily high level in golf, um, without us knowing anything about it. And I was happy to see that that was actually the angle that Paul Kimmage went at. Like He, he basically says, I've been trying to piece together the dots on Seamus Power. And I saw Power interviewed after he won a... In, was it about... To solve? But he was seemed to be very, very understated about it. And I know one or two people that know him as well, and they said that that's kind of his nature. You know, he he he, he doesn't get too excited. He doesn't give too much away. But where the hook came into this piece was early on when Kimage asks Paragat Harrington about him, and, um, you know, about the Irish golfers on tour and, and the people that they're with all going out for dinner. And Harrington says, well, we've invited him, but he kind of just does his own thing and then they kind of revisit that team when he talked I think Paul was at the waste management in Phoenix and he was on the practice range and Seamus Power comes onto the practice range and there's a big spot beside Larry and there's another one beside McIlroy and he he walks over to another one completely, um, and I'm sure that straight away Paul's kind of spidey senses were tingling. Like we have, we have an in because I suppose the fair is when you interviewed this guy. It's just that he has no story. His story is he's a really good golfer and he's nothing else to him. But clearly, there's something that makes him uh, different mm. because I'd like to think that whenever I turn pro and go into the PGA Tour, the first thing I'll want to do is hang around with Shane Lowry and Rory McIlroy, uh, and that doesn't seem to be part of. Uh, Power's motivation at all. He, he seems to be happy enough playing his own furrow. And they go into other aspects of it. This looks like it's at least a two-parter because there's a there's a a, a teaser at the end of it for the next uh, next week's piece. But he goes into the fact that Power's mother died when he was very young, mm. um, and how that affects him. And I was really surprised to see the power kind of open up. Like he was he was he was very happy to kind of speak about it. And and he kind of says to Paul in, in the piece. I wonder myself how it kind of affected me. Um, so I'm kind of all in for next
0: week's one. It's tidied it's up nicely. Terribly sad when he talks about his mother. Uh, he was only eight. Uh, what memories do you have? Not many. That's one of the saddest things. And he talks about being home six or seven years ago, looking for something in the house. I saw a picture and I said to my dad, who is that? And he said, what do you mean? And it was his mum. But before she got sick because his only memories were of her when she was sick. Uh, she was going through a chemo from when he was four or five years of age, and so she lost her hair, and you can only imagine how dreadful it was. And of the funeral, didn't register until you saw the coffin going into the ground. That's when it hit me. It did? Yeah, because somewhere in the back of your mind, you think she's not coming back, and they do chat about what effect that may have had on him. And of late, he's uh, gone back to dig into his mother's past because he said I do a lot of reading and I came across this thing if you were to write your mother's eulogy and it made me realise I don't know much that much about her life so he's had emails from his dad and from his aunt and has learned a whole host of things uh, about her so uh, an amazing insight into his past and he lives in Las Vegas yeah and, and, and Kimish just said to him you seem like the least Vegas person on planet earth and, and he acknowledges that but his cousin Nick has been there for a number of years and so the lure of family and uh, I mean, I, I, I'm always fascinated, I have to say, um, by the financial aspect of very normal people who excel at a sport and then they get rich beyond their wildest dreams. I think, you know, what does that do to you? And um, Paul Kimmich says, what did you make in Phoenix this year? And power. More than I thought, it was 250, 260, Kimmich. It was 245. Power, yeah. What did you make at Riviera? I think about 100 more. Paul says, 355. Yeah. The Arnold Palmer... Uh, 50-ish probably 40 yeah what did you make at the match play uh, the match play probably 110 or something Paul 113 Par. geez that's nuts what did you make Sunday at the Masters I honestly don't know and Paul says so you've answered the question when did you stop looking <laughs> and uh, Paris says you do get a text message to tell you how much you've won what a hell what a, what a life <laughs> <laughs> to get a text message on a Monday <laughs> uh, so Kimmy says you're a millionaire now and uh, what's that done for you I just think it's such an interesting question. And Paris says, it hasn't done that much to me. The one thing uh, that's nice is been able to do some cool things for friends and family and talks about bringing them all over to Augusta and he could uh, pick up the tab Uh, there so um, that's the other thing about pro golf as
2: well is that success kind of breeds success in a lot of ways because when you're you're a qualifier you know you're somebody who's coming from the Monday qualification school and you might be waiting on somebody to drop out and then you're getting a flight last minute you know on a Wednesday to a tournament and you're playing at very awkward times you know that's a tough life and that kind of that schedule doesn't Really, it's not very conducive to success. Yeah. Once you start to have success, like Seamus Power has as well, you're now qualifying automatically for the majors. You're under no pressure to make the cut because you have money now. It's not a case of you have to pay your bills, you have to pay your caddy, um, and you would imagine like with Power, with his pro, also with his game as well. Like not to be too nerdy golf about it, but like he has a very suit game suited to a lot of the PGA Tour events and a lot of the American golf courses. I don't think he's going to win the Open Championship, the British Open necessarily I think he'd have more chance of winning at Augusta um, but he's going to have a very long and I would suggest very lucrative career I would think so
0: and he's improved massively in the last couple of years I remember reading a different piece of him when he was talking about how he practised his wedge game with Zach Johnson got elbow surgery and didn't realise how much his elbow was bothering him and so in the last couple of years sorting those few things out he's taken a rocket ship because I just didn't see him getting to this level I have to say there was um, and, and they may well get into it actually in part two but there's a mention there of Fred Warren who recruited him to East Tennessee and he did an interview where he talked about Power and um, they made the offer to come to East Tennessee and Power's aunt, who I think is mentioned in this piece as well, she's obviously been a big part of the family's life because poor father was left trying to raise kids and and he worked two jobs as well. That's a big point of emphasis in this piece to try and and, uh, let the family follow their dreams. But the aunt called Fred Warren and gave him the real... Like, what are you up to, you know, what, what do you want with Seamus and what's going to be on, going on at this campus and what are the academics like there and, and so he got a call from her a couple of weeks later to say, okay, we're going to go with you and he assumed she'd looked at the brochure and she had actually flown to East Tennessee, looked around, made damn sure it was up to scratch for Seamus, oh, flown right. home and said, okay, and I remember in the interviews, as well, Fred Warren saying that Power didn't just take a name an easy degree first one that comes to your mind go English and history did, did it myself <laughs> <laughs> uh I was did, this way. did yeah didn't just do English and history but took one of the most challenging accountancy numbers yeah. uh, degrees and excelled at it as well as excelling at golf so the thing that's really inter-
1: the thing that's
2: really interesting as well about him not and I don't know like the degree to which he doesn't sort of knock around with the other Irish golfers yeah. but the, really the interesting thing to me is having watched the full swing thing on Netflix as much as it would be a great life to be part of the PGA Tour I don't think I'd be hanging around with Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth, like, you know what I mean and you'd, you'd naturally gravitate towards your own anyway and there aren't that many Irish golfers over there so you would have to have a very um,
0: not insular but you'd have to be very sort of happy in your own skin not to I was curious and maybe again to get into it in part 2 does he have mates? Or is he just anti-Irish?
1: <laughs> uh, but I think what's interesting about him is that like, his is one of the most stunning rises in Irish sport of the mass, pick a number, 20 yeah. years. Yeah. I mean, like, the guy was, it's spelled out here, July 2020, he was the 505th ranked golfer in the world. Oh, he was clinging, clinging on. Two years later, he was in the top thirty of the Masters. And, like, nuts. and now he's a millionaire, as this piece um, points out. But he's completely, and he's also overcome very significant personal... Adversity, having lost his mother so young an age, but he's completely free of affectation mm. or any kind of any notions. I suppose would be the Irish phrase for it. And the way that that is addressed at the end of this piece, it's very I think, is complete genius. Yeah, because Paul Kimmage picks out his uh, his photo, his profile picture on the PGA Tour website, and he asks him, "I want you to study your face." And Seamus Power says, "Oh yeah, smiling away." And Paul came in. says, "No, it's not the smile. That's the photo of a man who has never spent a moment of his life looking at himself in a mirror." And he's right. Like you should, you should get the paper because it's <laughs> printed here. It honestly looks like he's sitting down for his first school photo, yeah. twenty years too late. It's yeah. honestly like he's never has never had anyone pointed a camera squarely at him before. Yeah, it's it was such a brilliant way of approaching it. Uh, it was a great piece. I I, I, I felt I didn't really know James Power. Uh, now I feel I know him a lot better, and I think. Uh, well is is he slightly in contention later on tonight probably not he's what nine shots back or something Look he will be getting another text message to say I'm trying to 2:30. wonder what <laughs> what time did they send that text message out
2: because like I you don't know. know if you're lying there with a hangover and obviously you go oh, what's this now and then you flick up your phone and it says well 170 grand I'd say it's easier enough to get out of bed Yeah right we'll get a coffee
0: come on <laughs> <laughs> I always I always remember uh, J P Fitzgerald when oh, yeah. Rory McIlroy won a FedEx
2: oh, yeah. which 10 is 10 million.
0: million and I presume he gets his 10% and I always remember his line where he said I told Rory or I texted Rory or something on those lines a tsunami just hit my bank account so thank you yeah not bad not bad
1: the money so the caddy
0: got a text as well I don't know. I don't know. The money is bonkers. But bonkers. In fairness. It feels unsustainably bonkers for the amount of people who seem to watch golf.
1: Yeah, but then... You don't think so? the right sponsors, Oh, we say. Listen,
0: corporate America is um, in love. But I hear you.
1: what I would say is that I'm not revolted by the figures that these guys are getting when you read where Seamus Power came from. And there is an element of that they have earned this, okay? The money in the world is crazy, but you know, outside the top, if, when you're going to QSQ, like this, he's talking about how, you know, it's $1,200 to enter a tournament. I skipped the next one because I felt I couldn't afford it. Mm. it kind of feels like you've earned it in a sense okay it's on their bonkers terms but you have earned it and then you know I think that's one of the issues people have with live golf they just haven't earned
2: it if you did a cross section as well of the PGA Tour leaderboard this evening or any other week there's very few golfers of the profile of power that actually came the route that he did or were as old as he was by the time he actually made the cut you'll find that a lot of them were division one golfers in collegiate golf in America and they were set for stardom and they signed a deal with Nike before they even turned pro Mm. and that's what makes it more admirable as well even if you remove the Irish context from his story he is a
0: very interesting um, he is a very interesting figure in golf his story by the way just as an aside apropos of nothing it just uh, it's uh, the uh, parallels here with Bono's story I'm listening to his audiobook at the moment oh. and again it's a house where the mother passes away and its father and, and in Bono's case two sons just left to pick up the pieces and yeah. uh, it's uh, no joke have you listened to any of that audio book by the way no it is so good, isn't yeah. it so good I don't know if I would have sat down to read the book, but the audiobook is exceptional because Bono like does all the voices, so when he's doing his dad's voice, he goes into full Paul,
1: oh, what are you got lad
0: <laughs> and you know, and then he sings bits here and there and then there's music playing and there's certain sound effects, and it's just like a treat for the ears i'd highly 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 recommend it's it definitely- even even if you're one of those people who feel it's very fa- fashionable to say. Oh, Bono. Yeah, uh, he's uh, he's an impressive person. Okay, well, they sent that album to our phones. Maybe they would have been better off sending that audiobook. Yes, he does make a quip about that. Actually, I think he's going to get into that later on. I'm only early on, but uh, okay. I'm like, dreadfully sad. And it does okay. uh, 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 we get an, an article here, but you, when it's across several chapters of his childhood, I mean the the pain it causes to a household is hard to even get your head around when a, a mother dies and you've got young kids in the house so amazing you're right next week the rise and rise of Seamus Powers promise so we'll get more into the golf game uh, just before we go we've got four minutes here before an ad break and then we'll finish off the stories on the far side of the three o'clock news but just to finish off on the provincial GEA Connor, you picked out Dermot Crowe talking to the Clare goalkeeper Stephen Ryan who'll be facing Kerry Uh, today they sat down for a good hour he's pretty confident now this goes out on a Monday so before you say Claire might give it a good go you have to really mean it because people will listen to this after the game Um, why did you like this piece?
2: Well, it, it, we were actually just speaking about this beforehand. It, it, this, I thought, would be the year when um, we would finally see the utter futility of the provincial football championships um, because they're, they're being squashed and made more and more irrelevant by what's going, about to come next in the All-Ireland series. Um, but unfortunately for advocates of getting rid of the provinces, we have Clare in a Munster final, Sligo in a Connacht final and Loud in a Leinster football final. And that makes them endlessly better.
0: Even uh, if they get hockeyed in all three.
2: Yeah, because I think that the profile of the the underdogs in in county Gaelic football have changed. I think to get, as far as a provincial final, you have to be a good, solid, organised team. Uh, like Sligo, OK, they're 10 points down as we speak here. But like Galway are there thereabouts as All-Ireland contenders. Um, last week, I was in Crow Park for the awfully loud game and speaking to Samuel Roy and Mickey Hart and a few people afterwards and Louth had been kind of damned with this tag of Leinster's second best team during the year and part of it was almost patronising because the implication was well Mead and Kildare aren't up this year so somebody has to be Leinster's second best team but they properly lived up to that potential they, they embraced that and they're in the Leinster final and you can see you can see the kind of confidence that comes with players knowing that they're being led in the right direction And you can see that with Mickey Hart and Gavin Devlin. And the same thing applies to the Clare players. They know that column Collins has their best interests at heart. They know that they're getting close to their absolute maximum. Um, And even if their record against Kerry over the last 10 years in Championship football has been really, really poor, it's the one. You know, you would say that Clare's record against Kerry is one of the reasons why. Dividing the championship up in, up in geographical bases is an absolute disaster, but I think in the Gaelic grounds tomorrow they'll give a, a, a of okay. today. they'll give a different account of themselves. Today they give a different account of themselves because they're a properly well organised team. You know, like th- th- teams like that, they don't kind of walk blindfolded into these matches anymore. They know what they're going to get. They're able to measure themselves in preparation as to what's going to come. Um, and I think Clare being in the Munster final, the same as Loud and the same as Sligo, it, it's in, it's inherently a good thing for Gaelic football. Okay.
0: Uh, anything about this piece, Jump Out of Cheer, from Stephen Ryan, the Clare
1: goalkeeper? we uh, read it so long ago now, I can't exactly remember. But um, there's a lovely bit in it where he's, uh, he's coming back. Was it Kieran Lillis is the goalkeeper's name? Lillis is definitely the surname. I'm really sorry if I got the... Sorry, Mark Lillis. Kieran Lillis is a different player. He played all the championship games with Clare. I think it's five games and Stephen Ryan comes in for what it proves to be the final game of the championship and everyone allowed to like, keep their jerseys at the end of the year and Stephen Ryan obviously has number one on his back but gives that to, uh, to Mark Lillis so I thought that was just a nice little insight into, into kind of the kind of person that he is Yeah I mean he came across very well they g- he gave a full
0: hour to Dermot Crowe is almost what Jim did This is the made, other thing that we were discussing unusual. and
2: this is a very journalisty thing to speak about as well but when teams like that come into prominence Clare, Loud, Sligo and um, are very, very happy to kind of give their time. They're yeah. happy to engage and I think it boosts, that's another reason, it, it actually boosts the kind of profile around the provincial finals. I would suggest that this year, despite the fact that they lack any real re- relevance in the overall context, that the provincial football uh, finals have gotten a lot more airtime and newspaper space and everything else than they would do, have done in previous years where you might have had a Cork-Kerry final or a Dublin E-final or whatever it might be.
0: Yeah, true. Well, we're going to come back to Ga. There's an interesting piece on uh, punditry, as there is most uh, Sundays. And also Michael Dignan uh, giving Ga Go the thumbs up. He wasn't a fan of Sky, but thinks Ga Go is a good service. So we'll touching that in just a moment. Back with Connor and Gavin after 3 o'clock news. Now you're welcome, Max. So Galway, 10 points to the good against Sligo. two thirteen to 9 points. Sligo about to bring it back to 9. They're into the wind. But uh, regardless, you would think Galway in uh, very firm control of that game. 57 minutes on the clock. We'll go back to Colin Boyle in just a moment. In the meantime, we are reviewing the Sunday papers. We have Conor McKeown of The Independent, Gavin Cooney of The 42 here in the studio. Uh, by dint of uh, Michael Dignan's piece where he's uh, approving of GA Go, he was very much anti Sky a couple of years ago. But just before we get into that, as we watch Galway uh, win and presumably Kerry beat Clare, I think a lot of people, Connor, are starting to look at the group stages, the inaugural group stages in Sam Maguire 2023. So 16 teams go through the four provincial winners the four beaten finalists Westmeath by dint of winning the Talichan Cup in 22 and then the next seven ranked teams based on the Football League so the uh, thing here is Marco Shea in his piece he's basically writing about Kerry out of their game today and saying how they need to get a move on but at the same time he says I'm not quite sure when the championship starts it's hard (laughs) to know so he says somebody texted him about one of the groups and said it was the group of death and he said steady on (laughs) Three of four teams qualified. There's nothing deathy about it. So in group one, let's pick our three teams to go through here. In group one, and I'm assuming Kerry be Claire, it's Kerry, Loud, Mayo, Cork. Kerry, Mayo, and. Okay, so that's alive. Well, Loud be Cork in the league. So. Okay. So that's not a done deal. No. In group two, we have Galway. Who's going to lose between Armagh and Derry, by the way? Armagh. Okay. We've Galway. We have Armagh, we have Tyrone, we have Westmead. That was the group of death, apparently, but sure. Galway, Armagh and Tyrone will go through there. Yes. Okay. Uh, group three, Dublin, Sligo, Roscommon, and Kildare. Who won't progress there? You want me to say Kildare, don't you? No. Sligo. I don't know. Maybe Sligo, yeah. Okay, so Dublin, Roscommon, and Kildare go through. Uh, group four, so you have Derry as the winner. So Derry, Clare, Monaghan, Donegal. On current form, when you go? Probably, yeah. Okay. Do you think these groups, one, will have a bit of jeopardy to the end and then two, what effect will they have on the All-Ireland uh, series as it gets down to business? Well, there's a couple of things. Like,
2: firstly, so there's a lot of games to get rid of four teams. A lot of games, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I suppose the devil is in the detail with this. Um, the way the groups finish up on the last day, are the matches in neutral venues, and that's when seed one plays seed two, and seed three plays seed four. So usually in groups, you might have a couple of dead rubbers, but there won't be this time because around. Because you've seed three against seed yeah, four. Yeah, so seed yeah. three against seed four is going to form will be which team makes it through and which team gets knocked out. Seed one against seed two going to form is who tops the group. Now the big thing about topping the group is you get a weekend off. You go into a quarterfinal as opposed to a, a preliminary quarterfinal. That might seem like a small thing, but it's not. Because for, so, if for a team to go through the group stage into a preliminary quarterfinal and then to go on to a quarterfinal, semifinal and a final, you're talking about seven matches in nine weeks. Okay. Um, and that's starting only two weeks after your provincial final. So that's a savage, savage program of games. You know, if you look at Kerry, like I think Kerry are all-Ireland favorites because... They won the All-Ireland last year and done nothing wrong this year. But part of you was watching them this year. With they haven't done
0: much right this year either.
2: Yeah, but that's what All-Ireland champions do. Yeah. Um, but part of you was kind of looking at them saying, well, if they're going to have to come through these this programme of fixtures in the Championship, they're going to need a deeper squad. Um, and so far, they haven't actually cultivated that. It's it's pretty much the same team as last year. Yeah. Um, because somebody's going to get injured. Somebody, th- You're going to have to rotate for certain matches. Um and as we said, it's not a case of you win your first two matches in the group and then you take the last weekend off because you're giving yourself an extra weekend off with one fewer round if you go and win it. So, I think it's going to be really good. We're going to have a like there's a novelty factor to it first of all, yeah, which I think is is pretty good. But I think it'll have more or less the same effect that the the round robin in the provincial championships has had. You know, you have a higher, like I was a, I was a kind of a cautious fan of the Super 8s mm. um, insofar as you were getting more games against, where teams played each other that were at a particular level. The problem with that was that it was so exclusive. You know, you had eight teams that were having this drastically extended season, whereas everyone else was just out. Yeah. It's different now. With 16 teams. That might seem slightly too much. You might have five or six teams that might struggle to compete. Um, but it also gives it also gives the Talton Cup I think an added value that you can qualify for this thing next year. So uh, I'd be very optimistic about this. I think it's okay. the, I think it's the right idea and the big unfairness about the provincial championships where if you were say drawn in Ulster preliminary round you have to win four very strong games to as as opposed to what Kerry have to do in Munster mm. or Dublin have to do in Leinster. That's nearly irrelevant now, you know, like once you qualify for the All Ireland series
0: everybody starting from the same position OK uh, let's go back to Castlebar. 61 minutes on the clock Galway 2.15 Sligo 11 points so that 10 point lead bubble Colin Boyle seems fairly consistent now for the last quarter or so
2: yeah, it has, Joe. Look, it's not really as much changed. It pretty much is the Matthew Tierney show here. He's kicked 2-5, two, 2-4 two, from play, and he's just been so, so dominant in, in, in many aspects
1: of the goal of play. Interestingly, his man, Derek Cummins, was taken off there a, a couple of minutes ago. He actually kicked his third point from play just before he was taken off, so that got a couple of
2: groans from the sliver crown. Uh, also Damien Comer Shane Watch and Rod Ferrenti have all been taken off in the second half and none of them actually got a score from play before they were taken off and considering Galway have scored 2-15 it is a bit of a surprise but a really really comfortable day for Galway they're, they're absolutely cruise control and they're just looking really to play out the last 7 or 8 minutes here without picking up any nicks I'd say for,
0: ahead of a, a big game in, in a couple of weeks time Ok very good Colin thank you so Galway 2-15 Sligo 11 points 10 point margin Galway about to retain their Connacht title for the first time in 20 years Fellas, Michael Dignan on page 65 of the Mail on Sunday. Why I have changed my mind on pay-per-view option to watch games is the headline. He references a couple of years ago where he went viral, really, when he had a an outburst, as he calls it, against Sky a couple of years ago. It was unrehearsed and emotional, struck a chord with lots of people. And he said as the Sky coverage went on, some people loved it. But uh, he was talking about the cost here more so. I checked this week, Sky Sports Package will cost you €22 Euro for the first six months and then full cost of €39 Euro for the next six. That total is €365 Euro for the year. And then the following year, without the promotion, it's nearly €500. Euro and that's only for sport. And he's uh, talking about the appetite for games now. Back in eighteen, RTE showed 40 live games. This year... The figure is 69 games and still people want more. So he said, if people want to see more, then you have to find a way. GA Go is an attempt to meet the demand. The package is €79 Euro for a season pass. There's a discount for GA members. It works out at about roughly €2 Euro a game when you take in the 38 matches on offer. Uh, GA Club can get the package for €150. Euro. Pub can get one for €300. Euro. And he says, I've seen firsthand in my role as Offaly Chair that GA Go have been in touch with our PRO to provide a link for free access to nursing homes and to care homes, which is a lovely touch. You have to say it's a great value package. The production is quality via RTE. In terms of analysis, you have a whole cast of past players who know what they're talking about. For that sort of product, I don't think it's expensive. It's manageable for most people. He does throw in the caveat. The one issue seems to be the... um, Rural uh, Broadband. I was talking to Anthony Daly recently. He was telling me how he had issues in his own pub last Saturday when they were showing the thrilling Clare Limerick game, how the coverage unspooled at different stages. You can imagine the reaction amongst Hurling fans on the premises. <laughs> <laughs> ah, dear. You'd love to see it. So um, Michael Dignan makes the point. €79, Euro, 38 matches, high quality production values. Let's be fair; that is reasonable and manageable for most people. So, fair enough, he says.
1: Yeah, can't argue with it. I mean, it's a great service for those for the fa- the established fans. The only issue, and I think there's been a bit of caviling lately about you know the Cork Tip game last night. Why wasn't that on TV? I believe that was on GA Go. Yeah. It's just like the only thing that's the only ish- the downside here is the casual sportsman who realizes. Fifteen minutes into a Monster hurling game because they check their Twitter or hear something on the radio. Oh, hang on, this game is on. It's really, it's really great. There's been an established culture going back decades that big Monster hurling game. Sure, it'll be an RTE, but the landscape has changed now. So I think the the only real valid criticism that I've seen of it is the is the hassle that goes into setting it up. And maybe there's not that much hassle at all, but it is more hassle than just flicking flicking on your remote. Mm. Yeah, I like there's. There's a lot
2: of people are kind of torn on this um, and there seems to be this kind of idea that the matches that are on pay-per-view have been put behind this Sky Go wall as though they were always visible. Like They weren't, you know. Like the Munster Championship until 2018 used to be five games long. Um, you know, and you know prior to the mid-90s, most Championship games weren't on television. So it's not as if these games are now being kind of hidden out of sight. This is an additional thing. People... Probably won't appreciate this, but they pro- they do need to appreciate that the GAA is not in a very advantageous position when it comes to selling the broadcast rights to its games. RTE have a cultural uh, claim on a lot of those games, so I don't know how that deal works out too well. And when Sky didn't want to pony up for whatever deal that they were looking for, it wasn't a very um, it wasn't a very competitive market for the GAA so they had to do something so you can either show the games or not and to show the games costs money like that's that's the bottom line and the, I think the, the issue here maybe is that the GAA are a small bit ahead of the cur- curve like they've embraced the future of major sports bodies broadcasting their own games and um, because they've effectively they've had to like I'm not sure that RTE have the the capacity to put on any more games I saw people giving out yesterday that they were showing the coronation but they weren't showing the Dublin-Wexford game as though it was kind of a choice of one or the other and decided to go with uh, Charles getting his new hat. Like, but it's a punchy tweet though. It uh, is a punchy tweet, there's no doubt about it. But like, the, like uh, Michael Dykman has it here, the GA go package of 79 euro for a season pass, um, 38 matches. Now, we all have, like, it's a, it's a feature of modern living. We all have our subscriptions to our podcasts or whatever. Yeah,
0: they start to add up when all of them are just a fiver a month. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but, like, th- somebody was tweeting la- or somebody was talking to me last night on know WhatsApp message and it said it was a disgrace he had to pay 12 euro for a single game. Mm. That is a lot. Yeah. You know, like, it if, is. Like, you're, if you're paying 12 euro into a league match, you know, fair enough, you're there in the flesh. Uh, But I would suggest that it it is good value so long as you're actually able to access it. Um, It would be an absolute killer to be watching it over some sort of scratchy... uh connection that you weren't able to properly stream it. Yeah, which isn't the GA's fault of course. Yeah. But, but I think the really GA awesome. I think the GA had very limited options here. The, the thing that I was worried about was that you were going to pay this money for effectively a feed of a match. But the like when you're watching it there's no difference between it's you know the rote of analysts like they're very good. You're used to seeing them. Um Granny is a, an excellent presenter. Um like it it's it's basically like watching a match on RTE. Like mm. if if you can access it and you're interested, I, I you know I don't see the downside to it. And I think the I think the overall package is very, very reasonable. You know, because the the alternative is you don't get to see these matches at all. You know, like RTE can't have a hurling channel on a Saturday, it just doesn't work like that. And there are so many matches there that you know, we're we're in a very privileged age as consumers of sport. Like when a match isn't on the television that we want to watch, we all kind of lose our marbles and go searching for dodgy streams to make sure we watch it. But um, you know, it wasn't always the case that there was some avenue through which to view everything that we want to see.
0: Mm. No, that's a fair point as well. On uh, the issue of television coverage, invariably talking about people who talk about sport is uh, mm. last time for lots of us. So uh, for the second week in a row, there's a big piece in the Sunday Independent taking very square aim at RTE. Last week, it was Joe Brawley who was saying effectively that the GA coverage in RTE was either a source of national shame or national, national embarrassment. It was one of the two. Mm. It was one of the two. He's Broly um, today is writing about the, the wellness industry, which has been uh, an issue he's talked about a lot lately. So that's what he's writing about this afternoon. But uh, So he, he wrote about the coverage last week. Eamon Sweeney this week on the back page of the Sunday Independent. Talk isn't cheap, it's priceless. TV punditry has rejected the very thing that made it worth watching. And he takes Ted Walsh's retirement as jumping off point after which Eamon Dunphy was on the front page, I think, of the Star, saying that RTE wanted to destroy punditry. Anyone with a personality is out or a brain, he declared. Joe Brawley said of the GA coverage, there is no sense from Ortiz now that this is supposed to be entertainment. Ortiz's uh, divergence from the bland approach favoured by British broadcasters was once a source of national pride. He talks about Dunphy, Giles, Bill Hurley, McGurk, Hook, Pope, Brawley. O'Rourke, Splann, Jerry Kiernan, Ted Walsh, and he said they not some they led not so much national conversation as a national argument, and you didn't need to agree with their opinions to respect the honest, intelligent, entertaining way they were expressed. Their airs don't excite the same passions. Uh, preference for agreement rather than argument has turned them into strangely peripheral figures. Halftime and post-match discussions are no longer required viewing. The anchors seem overly keen to avoid controversy on RTE's GA coverage, although we do say Michael Lester was often the same, but previous panellists were strong enough to override the host's caution and make their point anyway. Today's crop aren't. That inability may be a generational thing. Younger pundits seem spooked by the possibility of online criticism, which um, is an interesting observation. One I think, Gav, you agree with.
1: Ah, yeah. Like... Stuff like, you know, Orty wanting to destroy punditry and Joe Broddy saying anyone with a personality or brain is out is hyperbole and is very disrespectful to a lot of people working in those roles. But I think if you compare Orty's punditry output now to what it was 10 or 15 years ago, it is, I would agree, that it is blander and less interesting than it was. Um, I think there's a few parts of it. I think one of it is definitely Twitter. I definitely think Twitter has kind of ruined a lot of sports punditry because... No one should be that aware in real time of the criticism that's going to follow their way for, an, an ex- for expressing an opinion. And the way it works is that regardless of the opinion you express, someone is going to criticise you. So a lot, you often see now, like, you get the sense that people are kind of preempting the criticism and leaving their own opinion with it, which is not conducive to good punditry do or you, good you, comment at do think, all.
0: Do you think, though, I think it's 20, understandable.
1: 20 years ago, Eamon
0: Dunphy or Broly would have given two proverbial you-know-what's what Twitter was saying. I, I asked that because we did a roadshow at Graham soonest this week. Mm. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if the interview has gone out yet, but um, effectively he was saying it was not his decision to leave Sky. And, uh, yeah. you know, uh, but we were talking to him about social media and how it's changed punditry because Sky have almost leaned in. To well, that's the, the other way through, ruined about. it, yeah. And soonest was saying that like at the ad breaks, his colleagues, you can guess who they are, all whip out their phones to so, see which way the wind is blowing. Oh God, that's it, it doesn't soften their cough. You know, they still go for it. Yeah. And they're probably getting lots of criticism, so... Maybe it's a
1: personality issue. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a personality thing there. You need to be a, of a singular personality to be yeah. able to deal with that. Yeah. And we're also like, I mean, Broly Dunphy. Like, we're still reading these guys in newspapers and we're listening to their podcasts, etc. Because they're brilliant yeah. pundits. Yeah. They're, like, they're f- like one of the things, you know, when people criticise, like, or team management for allowing this atmosphere to take hold, one of it is just that you don't have these one-off characters anymore. Like, I think you're, like, you know, th- these people, they were... Brilliant at what they did. Like, I mean, there are other ways in which it, the comparisons aren't as like the Irish punditry isn't as good as it used to be. I mean, talking about Suness, like Suness is this like growling giant of British punditry. He was a supporting cast member mm. on RTE. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I interviewed him once about a few years ago, and he loved being on with Dunphy. The phrase he used, like, "I have no idea what grenade he's going to roll over under my seat." He, uh, we, we played him in the roadshow. The uh
0: well who have you managed? Managed to stay alive for sixty eight years, baby. Uh, we played m- it to him and It's great stuff like watching it. him
1: watch it. <laughs> <laughs> he Loved it, but he was also there for the quintessential moment of that RT panel. Suness was sitting for that; it was sitting in on. It was a world. It was an England World Cup game. I assume in two thousand and six, uh, England have disgraced themselves again, yeah. and they play Gareth Crooks' interview with Sven yeah. Yarnarx, and oh, it's yeah. it's such a softball interview. And Dunphy comes back and says that Bill is the first time I've seen two um, uh, sex between two men broadcast on the BBC. Yeah. So, and that that. Typify that or I know, I know, with a smile on his face, because I know, I know, and a yeah, say say more like that, you know. Yeah, but like that that typify the whole thing. It's just like we're going to say these things that you're not going to get away with on the BBC, and you're not going to get away. You're not going to see on British television. But it's changed in the last ten years or so. Like what the the British punditry output is actually. Broadly, very, very good. It's, I mean, so good. Carragher and Neville, when they're not doing their punch and Judy set or like Liverpool, Man United Fan Zone TV stuff on Twitter and on those games, they're honestly, I've never seen, I've never seen television analysis better than you know the Monday night football thing where they uh, where they properly put in the work. What they're doing is they're doing a very high level thing, very, very well. And I know there's like there's a criticism in, in this piece about using too many stats. I think sometimes. I don't know. I think Monday Night Football are in a good position in the sense like they've got like this incredible stats package by Opta that costs millions or costs thousands at least anyway that they have access to that not all other sports and have. Their
0: stats are super interesting.
1: They're so... Like, their stats are used to make a point. Mm-hmm. The argument comes first and then the stats comes to support it. Yeah, it's, whereas a, it's a, not just a sheet on a screen saying... Comparing wide completely possession. contextless, like, no point. Like, yeah. yeah. Whereas I think in, in other things like the stats come first, and then you're like, well, the stats say this, so my argument follows. Thus, they begin with the argument and, and look at the stats to support it. So, um, yeah. So that's a bit of a, a bit of a brain dump. And also, you know, one other issue, persistent issue that I've talked about here before is the continuing lack of desks on these shows. I mean, all punditry is about thirty percent better for having a desk there for mm-hmm. allowing ex that. pros to sit behind.
2: I think th- those kind of, um, you know, computer-generated spaceship kind of images of the studios, I can't think of anything that would be less conducive to somebody saying something entertaining than sitting in such a very sterile and confected kind of environment. Like. But from the Irish point of view, like it used to be a, sen- like a, a source of great national pride.
0: I mean, it's when he says that, yeah. yeah. We, used
2: to watch, we used to watch Match of the Day and it was Des Lynham and Trevor Brooking and... Uh, Alan Hansen, and it was all so polished and dripping with honey and all the rest, but mm. and like it was fine. And then you turn on, and 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 you wouldn't know who was not talking to each other between Brady, Giles, and Donfy. <laughs> and maybe you could say that they're another degree removed from the people they're talking about, but they spared absolutely nobody. Mm. Um, and I think that did that particular brand of um, punditry did maybe hit its sell by day two because you know with the you know with the advent of information, you know, you kind of have to use it then. It's no good enough to say, well, we don't know a lot about the Colombians bill. Well, you know, everyone else does, so, like, you, you know, you have to have something. But by the same token, there's nothing that turns you off punditry quicker than you watch the thing and you're looking at them and looking down at their sheet and talking about, you know, this Sligo center or and and you know that this is stuff that they've prepared to kind of speak about because um, it doesn't really add anything to it, you know. It has to be, like, whether your preferences for controversy or the you know Roy Keane thing, or your preferences for heavy analysis, it's like journalism. The golden rule is don't be boring. And yeah. the, pro- the problem is too too much of an extreme on either side
1: is very boring. It's it's probably never been harder to do it well, and you make the point very well. Like, I think the viewers have never known so much before mm. as well. Like, I mean, you're being judged at a much higher bar now. I think as well. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's probably harder to do well now than ever before because of that feed lab, feedback loop through social media and the fact that everyone.
0: I agree with that because it's really funny. Knows. I went back and um, found myself watching the post match to the nineteen ninety four Ireland win over Italy at the World Cup on RTE. It's very niche. It was
1: very bad. Was that? Did they have a panel yeah. of people like an audience? Yeah, yeah. No, that was bad. Yeah, it was
0: bad. Mm. Like by today's standards, it wouldn't be. Accepted, it would be slammed, and of yeah. course, look, that panel really hit. They seem to just culminate and, and hit their straps, you know, late 90s and had a golden 15 years. Mm. But like, they've been doing it for maybe 15 years before yeah, that. They've become very comfortable, uh, the chemistry had been built up year after year after year. I think one of the issues, perhaps, in a TV studio, having had a, a bit of experience, is RTE do it. They mix up the panellists. But there's
1: there's too many people on the Sunday game.
0: And it's the same in the... I I would say, watching the soccer coverage, you turn on an Ireland international, you don't know who you're getting either in the presenter chair or in the three seats next to the presenter. And so how can any chemistry Mm, begin to develop? Um, There's not enough continuity in the team, Bill, is uh, (laughs) what I'm saying. But like, really, people, if they're going to have an argument with each other or really disagree with each other... It helps if they've been out for a few drinks. It helps if they've done it 20 times before. It helps if they're friendly. So at least they can turn to each other during the ad break and say, no hard feelings, no hard feelings, because it is it's funny. Um, you know, when like an argument happens on air, like it is an argument. It's not great sometimes. I know through the prism of TV, it's, you're very relaxed. You're you're sitting there in your sweatpants and you're not at all stressed. But in 3D, in reality, it's, it's a real thing. Yeah, I, and so it, you are Never, ever, ever, if you're in any way like a normal human being and somebody next to you who you don't know, aside from a cup of coffee beforehand and a how you says something you disagree with, you're going to really have to, you're going to have to really disagree with before on national TV, you cut the legs from under a complete stranger. Yeah. And surrounded by two other people that you may not have worked with before. So I think the, the lack of a coherent, regular dynamic holds back fights. I enjoyed the tension when, say, Donalogue and Shefflin were on the same
2: uh, p- punditry group in Crow Park. Like, you could tell that there was a general, like, you know, not a culture war, but there was a slight ideological issue yeah. that they were both passionately behind. And there was antipathy there from a you know previous life as players. And by the same token, I don't watch any rugby punditry, really. Like, I don't, you know, I don't really like to find out how the sausages are made in rugby.
0: Well, the, the Six Nations coverage version apparently is... <laughs> top, top.
2: I heard that, but uh, I did watch it because people were talking about it when Eddie O'Sullivan and Jamie Hazel were on the same panel. That there was fantastic, sort of crackling tension, t- tension between yeah. the two of them, and I found that very interesting to watch. Now, that's a short, that's a short shelf life. Yeah, but it was like well, it's good at the time. No, I I but by the same token, if you want to go back to the Sunday game, um, like it'd be very rare that I wouldn't switch it on if Joe Brawley was on it because you wouldn't have to necessarily agree what he was going to say. He would say something articulate. Mm. It might be off the wall. You might be really annoyed by it. Mm. But that's the nature of it. It's entertaining. And the same thing, like, Gerlach Nan went very quietly from the Sunday game hurling panel. Um, And it was because of his brand of punditry. that I I think he explained this in a column in The Star a couple of years ago after he went. He said that it was too personalised, you know. But that's... And Broly makes this point all the time in his
0: columns. You know, when people go to the pub after a match that's how they talk about the game you have a duty of care then to the players you're talking about you, you can't talk about them on t- a television the way you would talk about them in a pub it's no, a happy medium for sure
2: no but I think there is like yeah, there is a happy medium but at, sometimes it's slightly disingenuous you know, when, when people try and sugarcoat the thing too much yeah. um, or they go too heavy like, I was at a hurling match last night I was at Dublin Wexford in Crow Park I just went along for a look so I wasn't keeping notes um, and what was very obvious by the time we left was that Wexford should have won the game because so. And afterwards, we found out that the screen came up. Wexford had 19 wides and Dublin had six, and Dublin won by two points. So there is a statistic that if you don't have it, you're not doing your job as yeah. an analyst. Um, but sometimes I think you get the impression that they're mentioning and reference statistics just because that they're there, uh, and I don't think that adds very much to it.
1: Mm. And it's also, I mean, it's it's particularly keenly felt in Gaelic football now, in my opinion. Because that is a sport that is more interesting when it's talked about than than when it's watched at the moment. I find, I find Gaelic football at the moment, a lot more interesting than I find it entertaining. I think that's why this is particularly keenly felt at the moment.
2: I think we're coming through the other side of a kind of a, a difficult thing for a period for Ga Gaelic football intercounty uh, analysis, because for a while there, there was a kind of well, I don't like this game because I don't like the way that it's played. And that's nearly where the conversation ended. And it became quite derogatory and all the rest of it. Um, and it's fair enough to say that you don't find the particular style of football enjoyable. Um, and the first time that somebody called the puke football, Pat Balan, that was very interesting. But I found the analysis very boring of last year's Ulster final because it was just, well, this is very boring. Both teams are playing with a deep block. Nobody wants to get any man forward and it's, it's not much to watch. But I've kind of heard those opinions about those kind of games and you were probably looking for a little bit more than simply the taste of what the pundit likes, you know, because, um, like, we're all watching the game at that stage. Like, if you're watching an Ulster final and it's like that, you're invested enough in Gaelic football to make up your own mind about whether you want to enjoy it or not. You've made that choice already mm. uh, and I think, in that stage, you probably want to be enlightened this model a small bit more. I think that's maybe where the statistics might have been a bit
0: more of a useful tool. Mm. Just a final point, we're pretty much out of time Just to give it a very brief mention, Matthew Flamini has gone from Arsenal footballer to biotech CEO. He's interviewed in the Sunday Times magazine. So, uh, GF Biochemicals. He's 39 years of age now, uh, Flamini. Ironically, he was the source of the argument between Souness and uh, Dunphy and Giles that time. Was he? Yeah. Was he? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Why was he sold to Milan? I hope that's that's above the CEO thing on his CV. It should be. It should be. Uh, So, um... He's doing very well for himself. For instance, in May 2022, after speaking to Arsene Wenger to get the lowdown on Flamini, there was uh, an investment in his company of 15 million euro from Sofinova. And GFB Biochemicals, if you're interested, was founded in 2010. And what it's trying to do, I mean, it's brilliant, really. It's trying to get ingredients from biodegradable waste waste with the intention of replacing so-called forever chemicals. So there are a bunch of things in a whole range of products we use which never decompose. Terrible for the environment. Synthetic, fluorinated, hydrocarbons. They're integral to a wide range of everyday household goods. They don't break down and so they're harmful to both our health and the natural world. So the shampoo, he says, he's talking here at length, the shampoo we use, the cream we put in our bodies, the shower gel, most of it is based on petroleum products, Flamini says. When you start telling people that story, they go, wow, I didn't realise. Maybe I should be a tiny bit more careful about what I buy. When you use shampoo with silicone, the silicone accumulates in the water and it basically never degrades. The interviewer says, at times it is hard to get a word in with Flamini. Over the past... uh, Decade uh, GF Biochemicals has developed more than 200 patents for plant based solvents and plasticizers. He's an interesting dude, started off in Marseille, was doing a law degree before he realised he's bloody good at football. Uh, he has no scientific uh, background whatsoever. I'm surrounded by PhDs, people who have a lifetime of experience in the field. Every day I, have, uh, every day I come out with very naive questions. Uh, the company employs 50 people from engineers, sales, marketing, etc. Uh, he started this company when he was still at Milan, would be wearing a suit to training. There would be much hilarity in the dressing room. Who does this guy think he is? Well, these days, uh, the interviewer is trying to find out if Matthew is a billionaire. Uh, she asked him ra- outright, are you a billionaire? And he haven't, you know, she's estimated the worth of the company he's founded. He says, the company is a private one. We don't really communicate about the value. So that means he pretty much is a billionaire. <laughs> and uh, he says, in 20 years of my career, there, he's talking here about the drive that, you know, it takes of football. Uh, players to play at a high level and how they're told to stay in their lane. But he says, in 20 years of my career, there wasn't one day I didn't wake up or go to bed feeling pain everywhere in my legs. You constantly have to push your limits. And this is something you also face as an entrepreneur. You have to constantly push your limits, keep going. So he says the transition has been very smooth. He's an unmarried man, has no kids, is uh, flying around the world. And
1: yeah, yeah, as they would say on Succession, has at least a bill. <laughs> Taking the oil out of the product is probably easier to do there than in football.
0: Pretty impressive. Mm. Founded that in 2010. It'd be very easy to take your six-figure salary a week and say, well, I've got 15 million, I don't need to do much. Well, do, you like. do we think that he is the richest pro or former pro footballer?
2: If he's a billionaire, does he have more than Messi and Ronaldo?
0: Well, Ronaldo's just picked up 400 million net. mm fair enough that's halfway to a bill mm. isn't it very obnoxious to call it a bill <laughs> I feel on like Instagram reels I keep getting like these young lads in their 20s coming at me talking about like a millionaire is nothing you need to have a bill have you noticed that trend it puts those text messages as a shame
2: as Power it does it
0: does does. so good man Matthew Flamini and he's look it's it's not you know he's not uh, he's helping the world as well so it's very impressive fellas Red right at time thank you both so much Gavin Cooney of The 42 thank you and Claire McKeown of The Independent pleasure fellas thanks Joe